Welcome to First Generation Burden, a series of conversations with immigrants and the children of immigrants. My name is Rich Two, and I'm your host. So this is the 31st episode, and we're currently in season four, and we have one episode left before we end the season. Uh, but there are a couple more special drops coming out before the end of the year. Um, recently, the announcement of the next live episode with Benjamin Evans, the inclusive design director with Airbnb. Uh, we're doing an event with him with AIGA New York. That's going to be a September 12th. So that's a lot of fun. And that will come out a couple weeks after the end of the season. So be on the lookout for that. Not quite over just yet. Also, I want to thank everybody that's shown love to the Cultivator drop that recently came out. And my piece was the first gen Air Max 270 Reacts. There's been a lot of uh, love shown to that community as well as uh, for the first gen shoe and that's really exciting and shout out to all the former guests that were involved like Ahmed Klink, Juan Carlos Pagan, Ty Turner, Zipang Zhu, Leslie Rosales, also today's guest Shira Inbar, um, everyone else involved, Jeff Levy who photographed the whole piece, uh, everyone involved has been so amazing and beautiful. Also shout out to MTV and uh, TRL's Fresh Out Fridays and Kevin Kenny, Esteban, Darren uh, for uh, allowing some, uh, some love thrown the first gen's way. And also the one show, one club, all those guys. It's really beautiful. And I just want to let you, the listener, know, too, that this show, this podcast, for the past three years, has always been a passion project. I've always dedicated my personal resources to this show. And also everyone that's contributed to it has, hasn't financially benefited from it. And uh, the shoe. This cultivator program is really just another way for the immigrant story to to get out there and to uh, provide an opportunity for uh, myself to give back through this forum. And it's always been a pleasure and it's always the hope that the listener, you guys and anyone that has exposure to this is is benefiting in some way through either just the stories or either through um, the ability to uh, give back on a much deeper level. So I, I appreciate all of you. So that said, the shoe itself, the first gen Air Max 270 Reacts, those are available until Labor Day. And again, the website, I will put it in the episode summary again this week. It's uh, cultivator.co backslash NYC underscore rich underscore TU. That's cultivator, C-L-T-V-T-R dot C-O backslash NYC underscore rich underscore T-U. And that will be in the episode summary. And also all of my proceeds that I personally make from the shoe are going to go to the American Civil Liberties Union. That's the ACLU. And that's going to help benefit immigrants rights. So just know that if you buy a pair of the first gen Nikes, that you will be contributing a piece to immigrant rights um, and helping fight that good fight with the ACLU. And we have a great episode today. Today's guest is Shira Inbar on Instagram, Shira No Filter. Um, I'm a big fan of hers. I'm a big fan of her content. We have a really fun conversation today about her upbringing in Israel um, and what her background and culture means to her creative life. Um, she has a really fascinating story about, about foregoing the Israeli army to work for the hotline for migrant workers uh, back in Israel. And it's a fascinating story. Um, we also talk about colonialism and religion. Um, and also, and this is for you designers out there, she talks about the philosophy behind the Yale aesthetic of design 
And I know for me, I was somewhat ignorant uh, walking into the door on that. So I was, it was very illuminating for me and quite fascinating. And right now she's a designer at Pentagram. So there's a little uh, couple of tidbits on that as well. So check it out. There's a really good conversation. If you checked out the sneaker stuff this week, uh, she was also in that campaign. So, so here we go. Shira Inbar, first generation burden. Wow, this is so beautiful. This is, I love the size. It's so personal too. I, I think that they really got a good format. I don't know if you've seen any of the other issues. They're all the same format. They all is it have shitty the- if I say that this is honestly the only one that I actually paid attention to? Really? No, yeah. Stop. Don't say that on the microphone. <laughs> I think they're all really good. No, I'm sure that they are all really good. It's just that uh, on the microphone, the I just happen to be a little bit too you- honest sometimes. Shira Inbar. Yay. Hi. Hi. How's it going? Welcome to Listening Party. Uh, the Listening Party Studio over Canal Street Market, where we are recording the First Generation Burden podcast. Thanks for having me. It's super exciting. Thank you for coming <laughs> by. Oh, actually, you're going to have to come up real close. Okay, how yeah, about that? There you go. Like, almost obnoxiously close. <laughs> it's funny, because hearing my voice and the microphone always trips me out a little bit. Oh, do you want to take the <laughs> headphones off? That If that makes you actually more comfortable, just because um, it, it'll help me yeah. <laughs> when you're obnoxiously loud into the I'm going to be half in, half out. How about that? (laughs) That's my life philosophy at all (laughs) times. I was actually telling uh, one of the designers, really talented designers that I work with, that uh, it it pays to always have one foot in, and then when you feel that a win's about to happen, invest your other foot in. (laughs) (laughs) I know. It's like not feeling like you're hermetically stuck in an aquarium always relaxes me. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, there you go. This is kind of an aquarium in here. Like nice and airy, and I don't know. When I was a kid, I loved building things and going into them, so I feel Got like it. this kind of makes me feel safe and good. So <laughs> that's good. Feeling safe is very good. Uh, so welcome to the yeah. podcast Thank again. You. Thank you. I love you for this being podcast. Here. It's awesome. So it was good seeing you at the commercial type event. And uh, my boy Lance Rusoff, uh, he was like, "Hey, go to this commercial type event," and uh, saw you there, of course. And it was really loud. It was really lit. <laughs> Uh, more so than most design parties, yeah. and I was actually quite impressed by the by the uh, raucous energy in there. So. I know, and it's type designers. Like, it is type designers. Usually, you would expect them to be a little bit more mellow or something, but the work is amazing. The work I was loved amazing. what they did. I don't know if you saw the new website that they launched for commercial classics. Oh yes, lots of amazing stuff. I thought I think what they're doing actually is very forward thinking, mm-hmm. but also the idea of celebrating like classic aesthetics but in a way that does allow it to have a forward momentum yeah is a good way to approach it the reason why i was there the night before that they actually had a panel where they had two type designers um paul barnes from commercial type yes vice for jones and then two designers got it so i was so two millionaires and you it, it was like two type designers and then two graphic designers and Got we also it. happened to be the type designers were men and the designers were women which i thought was what sort has, of what's an interesting the deal with thing that? um i don't know but i thought that Why that was kind of interesting <laughs> it was it was a little bit like sort of we also sat in different like on the designer side and the type designers side so mm-hmm. it was a little bit divided or something the conversation was really interesting and it was really about how historical typefaces can be used in current design. Oh, so interesting. So they asked, like what you said before about 
the question of a revival or, you know, of what, what is a revival and what is taxidermy? You know, that is... Taxidermy. Tobias Jones said that. I can't take credit for that. Sure. But also That's like... That's a great way to think about it. Yeah. But also as designers, how do we choose the typefaces that we use? You know, can you use old type in a new project, in a new medium, you know, or what kind of thought goes into choosing a typeface when you work? What were the main takeaways? I, I want to dig into yeah. your yeah, yeah, history, yeah, but I'm, yeah. I'm interested in this. Yeah, I mean, it was really interesting. And I thought, you know, there was a question about nostalgia in choosing and working with typefaces. And um, I thought that that was an interesting question because I feel like in recent like branding projects that we've seen lately, right. we see a lot of, for example, Cooper coming back, you right. know, and MailChimp identity, I think also... Um, Kickstarter also, I think, works with Cooper. So we suddenly have these tech companies that are like the newest technology out there, but they're using, you know, vintage typefaces. So what does that mean? What do they want to sort of portray? Sure. You know, maybe but a little bit nostalgia. typefaces <laughs> with no irony. Exactly. It's all about kind of hearkening back maybe to like a more safe 60s sort of nostalgia place. So oh, is that really, is that the key? Is it is it playing into... The idea of safety and nostalgia from a and integrity level. and and trust, you know, I think that's at least my interpretation. <laughs> Maybe I'm reading too much into it. No, but I don't think you are. I think that I sounds mean, spot on. No, so it, there were a lot of interesting points that were said there. Uh, I enjoyed being on the panel, even though I was surprised <laughs> that they invited me. But no, yeah. I don't think you should be surprised. <laughs> you're you're sitting in this podcast studio. We're talking. I mean, it's always fun to talk to people, so I always appreciate it. Uh, so I would love if yeah. you just uh, take us through your history, um, uh, where you are from and your lineage, and uh, we can just take it from there. Although I know we've uh, we've already had a great start. <laughs> um, uh, where do I start? I guess this is a life story. Um, I kind of asked myself if I should be on this podcast or not, because I was born in America, <laughs> uh, in Michigan, in, Ar in Ann Arbor. Um, my mom is Israeli. And my dad is from the Bay Area. Uh, they were in grad school there. They're both linguists. And uh, when I was three, we moved to Israel after a year of living in Utah. I think like my mom got a position there in the university. And uh, I think that after a year of living in Salt Lake City, she's like, I'm done with the USA. I'm gone. <laughs> ah. um, so I think I was three and then we moved there and it was the year 1991. And uh, that's also the year which the former Soviet Union collapsed. So there were all these, you know, former Soviet Union migrants coming to Israel and us coming from America. So what was, um, do you remember? Do you have any memories of that? I have a lot, actually. And I was only three, which is kind of surprising. Really? Um, I definitely remember like scenes from being in daycare in the States. I remember kind in of Ann Arbor, Michigan. Probably in Utah. Oh, in Utah. Okay. And your your mother was from Ann Arbor. So, so my mom is from Jerusalem, Israel. Understood. And my dad is from the Bay Area in California. Okay. But they met when they were in grad school in Michigan. Got yeah. It. Got it. So I kind of grew up speaking Hebrew with my mom and English with my dad. So as a result, I think I have a little of an accent in both languages, <laughs> which is sort of whatever. <laughs> Sorry if I'm not photogenic. <laughs> <laughs> 
for the listener, I'm actively taking photos and also taking videos of Shira while she's talking. So, no, you, no, you know that me. face. And don't pay attention to this thing. You know? I know there's a lot of stimulus with like the microphones and also you, my cell phone. You also know those pictures when people take pictures of you and you're in the middle of a sentence and your mouth like turns out like, <laughs> oh yeah, you, you just default to derp face. Yeah, exactly. Like, I'll put, I'll put that away. I'll put that away. <laughs> Okay, okay. No, yeah, some guests free. are more distracted or less distracted by it. Um, I'm sure that I'll sort of get used to it and everything. Right. Over the next uh over the next <laughs> five hours for this in depth conversation. <laughs> um but yeah, I mean I so I definitely remember being in daycare and I remember there being like nice wooden toys in Ann Arbor and in Utah and sort of very few kids in the daycare. Mm-hmm. Um but then in Israel, um I was sitting on like a tile floor that was probably kind of dirty. The toys were like empty cottages, containers. Yeah, I have a younger sister, Maya, and a younger brother, Yotam. Maya is three years younger than me, and Yotam is seven years. So, yeah, when we moved to Israel, it was already me and my sister. Um, And uh, and yeah, my brother was born later. Uh, Funny enough, they're both also in like the language sort of business <laughs> really what does that mean um well both my parents are linguists uh it means they kind of research how people talk what they mean when they say things um and it has a lot to do with you know culture and anthropology and language and history um also with cognitive sciences um so all of my family kind of works in that and i think in visual communication at least it's there's a little bit of that in there like, how does the shape of things affect how they seem to us? Like, how do we read things? How do we understand them? The shape of language, you know, it's the things that we deal with, I right. think. And then you visually manifest the shape of language. Exactly. Um, my mom is an academic and she used to have all this scrap paper from, you know, checking papers and doing research. And it would all sit in a pile. So one side was blank and I used to draw on the blank side. And the other side had transcribed conversations. So from a very early age, I kind of learned how learned that reading language was a thing, and that the way the language was written now, or punctuated, or you know, the way it appeared meant something mm. in a sense. So that kind of affected my um, awareness, I guess. Well, and was that something that, from your your visual uh, relationship? To, to language, is that something that you felt manifesting early on or was that something that you developed later? Well, I didn't really know about graphic design until I was like 19 or something. Sure. Well, let's take it way back even before that, <laughs> even before that term enters yeah. your psyche. Like what, what were you doing creatively when you were a kid? Uh, I and, was... and what also I want to know about the, um, the, uh, the creative uh, Israeli culture, specifically within your upbringing. Well, um, so I think in, in, so in Jewish culture, um, you're not allowed to, um, have like pictures and statues and figurines because that would sort of mean that you start worshiping the the image. Sure. Oh, it's idolatry. Exactly. So everything is only text in Jewish religion and also um, Islam I think has similar things so you see kind of typography being the center of the kind of spiritual experience and nothing else only typography so I think that 
there is something that you kind of learn to sort of think very abstractly and learn to value language and the form of language a lot. Um, so that's kind of a theme that happens in Judaism. But I think that Judaism and Israeli culture are quite divorced from each other sometimes. Sure. Um, they're, they're two very different things. Um, as a kid, you know, I loved building things. Um, I used to dance. I still dance. Mm -hmm. um, and play the piano. Like, I used, my parents are the kind of parents of like, you got to do everything. <laughs> like, dance, play the piano, be good at school. I like, had to draw. learn how to play the piano too. Yeah. But I was terrible at it. I, my parents told me I was good, but I don't know. It's like... Do you still play? I know how to play, but I don't have, like, access to a piano or an electric thing or whatever. I remember when I was a little <laughs> kid, I was in second or third grade, and I was this sensitive little, like, artsy kid, right? Yeah, it, same. <laughs> in New Jersey. And then we had to do the once-a-week piano lessons, and I always hated it in the back of my mind, but I always did it to make my parents happy and also my sister did it as well but she was like really good yeah. so I thought like oh how do I get on the same level as my sister but then we went on a long break no no practices no lessons for a few weeks because of Christmas break or something and then my teacher comes in on Tuesday night and I'm always annoyed on a Tuesday so <laughs> and I'm messing up my scales and not doing so great and in my head I'm like why am I still playing these stupid scales i want to be playing real music now but my body can't manifest that mm -hmm. and then my teacher said some offhand comment she was like he was like oh he he forgot how to play the piano uh, too much he got too much rudolph probably like it was the most dumbest thing it's not even <laughs> oh, like, no. not even a joke right yeah and then i remember as a child i was so offended by that that i stopped playing piano for years oh. and then i just I just relegated myself to being, eh, fine, I'm going to be complete shit at piano and I'm never going to learn. I'm never going to learn. And I still think about it to this day. Wow, that's that's sad. I mean, I hope you pick it up. I feel like you never really, really forget it. Right. But I sometimes find Photoshop myself... Photoshop became my piano. Exactly. Yeah, you're like sitting like that. Um, but I think that, you know, it's a lot about the music that you're given to play as a kid. Mm -hmm. And I think that maybe I would have enjoyed it more if the music was like music that I loved listening to, but I was sort of playing classical music because mm. that's what your parents want you to play. And right. it's beautiful. I'm happy I did that. And I still remember like the melodies in my head, you know. Right. Um, but it was definitely on the list of stuff that I had to do before I was allowed to like go to a friend or right. something like that. Do Does music still live within your work? So I look at your work uh, now um, and also, uh, thank you for this book because yeah. uh, like the the AIGA Ion Design Magazine issue too is beautiful. Yeah, and thanks. then also, I look at your motion graphic design as well. And I was talking to a, a motion designer about the the language of of uh, the phonetic language that creatives speak to each other. Mm -hmm. Where I don't necessarily speak the the mechanical language of after effects mm -hmm. right um where i mean i'm so rudimentary and i'm complete trash but <laughs> the way that i can communicate is through the phonetic nature of uh look oh can it do the shunk and then and one of those and where <laughs> i can talk about cadence and pace and about scale and size and overall movement by communicating that with my hands and my mouth yeah i mean I work on Emily Oberman's team at Pentagram. And when right. we work on motion projects, literally, I think half of the time when she's trying to describe what she has in her mind, or when we describe, we're always like, 
it should go it should go right you know so i feel like sound and kind of movement with the hands and you know kind of a th- theatrical behavior yes. has so much of a huge part to do with the design process which is funny because you're acting kind of goofy but you're working <laughs> on like a serious project yeah you know? but, but you're acting you're acting quote-unquote goofy but you're speaking a language that people can mutually understand exactly but also you're like super committed to it <laughs> i there are of course at, at my work my day-to-day there are a lot of musicians there and then uh, they speak like a musical language like their guitars like around and you'll just see people like strumming guitar just to relax or something yeah. which is cool and and it's it's interesting to see the way that they talk to each other in relationship to editing or to visual practices or the way that a holistic project just comes together and and like I was I mean I'm musical musical ish I played the trumpet for years but wow. I was I was a dancer because uh, I, I used to b-boy for years oh and, really and then that and then my physical cadence is a bit more of like I'm gonna hit on the beat and I'm gonna and I'm gonna hit this crescendo here in order to coast down or come to a hard stop or there's a bit of like a, a preamble with like a top rock thought yeah. where it's just like you know like slow then I'm gonna pick it up and I'm gonna go I'm gonna hit a thing and then I'm gonna <laughs> coast out you know um, yeah. and that's and those are the terms that we talk in and and that's kind of kind of continued for my entire career I don't know how yeah. you feel I mean I think you can sort of see that in your work like you talk about cadence mm. and there's just so much I mean you can't see a beat but you can feel an energy yes and I think you totally have that in a lot of people you know also in other people who I think work a lot with I don't know things there's just like an energy it's yeah. really hard to describe um so I think that I'm definitely attracted to that place um I also think like music has something that um like you can't stop it when you're listening to it or I mean you technically can but it's an experience that you have to kind of stay tuned and listen to it's not like a page that you can pause on and then flip the next page and stuff right. like that it's just like it just happens it just happens and I feel like that is something that um some design is also like that you know you just sort of it just happens <laughs> I, I don't know if that makes sense so uh let's Let's go back to Israel for a second. Yeah. When did you academically start to uh, embrace a creative world? And then how did you get to America? So, how did you get back to America? Um, so, I mean, my whole childhood, I was like the kid that liked to draw, the kid that liked to build. You know, I was the sort of creative, you know, force in the family. And mm-hmm. I was very lucky to have parents who really appreciated that and valued that and also my grandparents you know they really kind of made me think I was like special in that sense um and they really kind of invested in learning like ceramics and painting and like stained glass and you know almost like lots and lots of things as a kid um and uh so I kind of always had that thing growing up as a child um, and then, uh, this is a bit of a long story, but I'll get to the point. Um, we like long stories here. Okay, cool. Um, so I was in high school and uh, throughout sort of being living in Israel, I would say that I sort of found myself more on the left wing side of the map. Uh, so, you know, not being a national, like patriotic Israeli, but yep. being, you know, more progressive and left wing. Yep. Um, was there a big... 
progressive movement in Israel at the time um, among there, the youth? There is. Um, it, I think it's unfortunately getting smaller and smaller, but there still is a very strong core of really extreme left, you know, and you don't hear about it a lot, but it exists. Were you religious when you were a kid? Um, no, I... Is well, your family religious? Or I, no, I know they're academic. They're not religious at all. My grandfather is an atheist. Um, but I think, but Judaism is important to them, you know, not in the sense that, uh, they practice anything, but, but in the, the sense, cultural context, exactly. Yeah. And I, I kind of agree with that. I think that there's, you know, a tradition of education and, uh, kind of discourse and debate that I, and being an individual that I yep. really relate to. I, I think it's, it's so interesting, like the, your context of religion and the way it plays into your, your cultural world, because you and and Judaism are much more closely associated to like the physical origin mm-hmm. of it. Uh, so it is, it has a true cultural tie. But well, the- yeah, I mean, and I think that like modern Judaism yes. um, evolved mostly in the past 2000 years yes. before Israel existed when Jews were just spread out all across the world, you know, being migrants, being, you know, um, you know, people who move around and don't have a home. Yeah. And a lot of that kind of consciousness, I think, developed people to think independently or people to sort of relate to minorities more. And I think all of that sort of changed when Israel became what it is because suddenly Jews have a state. So Totally. You know, so I don't know. So, yeah. When I think about mm -hmm. religion, no, sorry, not to cut off the point. No, I always do cut off. No, 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 I don't, I don't. Tell me if I am. Like, I think about religion now is probably a hot take in terms of colonialism because I grew up Catholic and I mm-hmm. think, oh man, like my parents were Catholic because the Spaniards yes. it just jumped into this country and just like threw down and, and then they, they stripped about everything that, yeah. away and then now we have nothing left, but they left that stuff. And um, you know, I have respect for that culture, of course, but it, I'm thinking, well, what what was it 500 years ago? Can I, is there- Exactly, yeah. Can we reclaim that at all? Yeah. I really, I, I actually think about that a lot because, you know, Catholic, the Catholic religion is everywhere. Yeah. But it came there because of, you know- Because people felt some type of way. Exactly. So, I, but, and on the other hand, these people are sometimes so religious and I sometimes ask myself, like, don't they, don't they think about like how they became this? Not that I'm judging or anything. I'm just really curious. I think um, about the Inquisition sometimes and okay. like the idea of the Inquisition was like, wow, that shit went viral, went super public back in the day when stuff wasn't really public. Yeah. You know, that's so funny. I think I read once, I, I think it was like an article by Michael Rock where he says something like that the Roman, the Holy Roman Empire was the first branding campaign. That's <laughs> fascinating. Right? Because like, it was the first time that an entity, that an empire had like logos and flags and uniforms and all their cities looked the same and operated the same and had like this sort of principle and guideline and they just expanded in that way and created replicas of their you know brand right basically uh their style guide just meant that uh, (laughs) enforcing their style guide has a very different meaning yeah for them as opposed to the way we think about it now totally (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, enforcing their style guide probably meant that uh, some shit was going to get fucked up. <laughs> yeah, totally. Um, so, wait, so going, okay, okay, yeah, going so, yeah. back to that, the long so, story. Okay, so, um, so I was like this left-wing person in high school, and I was like fighting all the battles, the political debates, blah, blah, blah. And I don't know if you know, but in Israel, all everybody has to go to the military. Yes. I started to tell you about this once, I think. Like men, women, girls, boys, everyone goes to the army. Um, At what age? Right after high school. So like 17, 18. The boys are there for like three years. Uh, the girls are there for a year, nine months. Um, and there is like a small core of people who don't go for all sorts of reasons. Um, so, you know, I remember my friends in my class used to start asking me, like as we were approaching that age, Shira, are you going to go to the army? Do you want to go to the army? And in the beginning, I was like, yeah, I guess, like everybody. But then when it started to get real and the army comes to the high schools and starts to like interview you and think where you will be best to go and you do exams and everything then it suddenly hit me that i was on this fast train on going into the military right. and i just didn't want i couldn't even fathom it also because i don't agree with what it does and also because i i'm not that kind of person i don't like i can't be part of i can't put my identity aside and be in a military you know yeah um so i was like okay no i'm not going um and uh in israel you have this option of you know if you manage to get out of the military for you know whatever special reason you can still do national service what's national service you basically choose a nonprofit, or you get assigned a nonprofit, and you work there for a year you volunteer basically so I found this nonprofit called the Hotline for Migrant Workers, um, which is an amazing organization in Israel that helps migrant workers and refugees and women who've been trafficked. And I worked there with the lawyers and four more girls who were also doing national service. And we used to sort of help the community of the migrant workers in Israel and help them with legal things, go visit them in prisons and take their cases and bring them to the lawyers. I don't know if you know, but in Israel, there's a huge Filipino community. Oh, I didn't know that. Huge, like enormous. And uh, they, Filipino people, always they often come to Israel to work as caregivers. Yes, I did know that. So um, a lot of, there were just so many cases of people who overstayed their working visa or got married while they had their working visa and had families. Right. Their kids were born in Israel. And in Israel, you don't get citizenship just from being born there. You have to be Jewish or a child of a citizen. Right. So you had, you still have this crazy situation of lots of immigrant children who don't have legal status. And there have been cases of deportation and detention, um, not just from the Philippines, although from China, from Thailand, right. from South America, from Africa. Um, and so my job was to kind of work within that community and this was in 2006 so um in 2006 israel sort of recognized the situation of the, there's like 18 year old filipino kids in israel who are about to like go to the army they spend their whole life in israel and they're not legal you know yeah so oh so so they made just this because you're not a citizen you still have to go to the army but you're still not recognized you don't have to, but they, they wanted to. Like, they wanted to be embraced by the culture. They, you know, they were going to high schools. They were speaking Hebrew. Uh, they were just part of culture, but they didn't have... They could be deported any day. 
Um, so Israel recognized the situation and in 2006, they sort of made this law, any kid who was born in Israel more than six years ago can get legal status and their whole family. Oh. So suddenly all these- That's pretty cool. It is, yeah. And But the thing is like, if you were five years and 11 months, no. Oh, <laughs> you know? right, right. So um, all, suddenly all these families started coming into the hotline and my job together with other four uh, girls who worked there was to interview these families. We kind of had like a template that the lawyers gave us. So we would ask them all the questions about their history, you know, why they want to stay in Israel, where their kids went to school, why do they, you know, want to be here, and then like collect images and documents and kind of proof that they are Israeli. And then I had to put all that together in a packet and mm -hmm. submit it to the Ministry of Interior. So. I was essentially kind of doing, in a sense, a kind of graphic design there because I was yeah. taking pictures and documents and texts and questions and I was working in Microsoft Word to like put it together Yeah, and then submit it to the Ministry of Interior and then they would hopefully get legal status. And I was like 18 at the time and that is sort of when I started to be aware that the combination of images, words and, you know, putting them together can really sort of make, uh, it can really mean something in yeah, a sense. You can actually change a life. Exactly. Yeah. I think it's specifically in that case, you are directly changing a person's life I mean, through the narrative that you create. You're helping them get access to something that is life changing. Exactly. Yeah. And, um, and yeah. you did that for how long again? Like a little over a year. And then I went to the university. About how many cases would you be dealing with? Oh my on God. any particular time i think like there were hundreds of cases that i worked on in like in the whole year and something that i worked there there would be maybe like 10 a week or something like this mm -hmm. there was a lot um how does that affect your mindset moving forward well i mean i think that just um this sort of i always sort of feel but like deep injustice when I hear about, you know, migration issues. Yeah. Uh, just because in Israel, I really experienced this here. This also exists. Yes, it does I mean, exist here. My family, you know, were migrants too, you know. Right. Uh, and um, it's just, yeah, it's something that really I, I think about a lot. And, and just in terms of work and design, it really kind of puts you in the position of, in a sense, you are kind of a gatekeeper because you have the ability to take all this proof and present it in a way that makes sense, mm -hmm. in a sense. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so, you know, and it was, we were just working in like Microsoft Word, like mm -hmm. no Adobe or anything. Sure, sure, sure. Um, so but, then yeah. how do you transition from that into coming to the States? So um, after that year of working in the hotline, I started to study in the university. Okay. Uh, I went to Bezalel Academy of Arts and Design in Jerusalem, which is, it's a, it's a very old school. It's a hundred years old, more than a hundred. So it's actually older than the state of Israel. <laughs> <laughs> it's been there for a lot, many years. And it was kind of founded on like, principles of like Bauhaus and very kind of modernist and Copy. you know yeah, got yeah. That. um so and it's the national academy for arts and design um is it the one where where everyone strives to go towards yeah it's considered like a the good place there's lots of good places you can study in but that is like the iconic like that's the one yeah exactly that's the one with the juice <laughs> um 
yeah so i think i studied there and i was kind of like this like a student i was very sort of you know doing everything for the first three years the degree is four years and then i think in the third year um i started to become involved with a group of activists in jerusalem and i started to make flyers for them basically again like sure you're so political yo People, i love that but like, i love that it doesn't really get reflected here because like i come from there and a lot i've just spent my whole life almost there yeah and i had these tools and i have all these friends so it just kind of happens but it's i think it's part of the the drive and the mentality of of actively changing your world through your own abilities and your own two hands and there's a direct i think there's a direct connection from your from your physical spirit into into your output and like whether that output actually is something within a creative yeah. space or something that is like more directly yeah. life-changing i think that that's i mean i don't know it how all connected it's all connected it is and i mean i don't know how you feel but like let's say you there's a cause that you want to that you care about or you want to contribute to there's a difference between you know being in a crowd and demonstrating and being one of a lot of like just being a, a small person with a lot of other people and there's another way of engaging with whatever you want to engage with through your own individual lens which yes. is your abilities and what you can do and yes i always sort of looked for, there's strength in both of those things exactly um but i definitely feel more comfortable <laughs> in the place of connecting to things in my own way in a mm -hmm. sense um but yeah so in betzalel you know i i already kind of knew a lot of programs coming into there because as a kid we had a computer and i was i literally grew up on the internet uh we didn't have cable tv so i didn't really grow up watching tv i, I didn't have being, cable tv either when i was a kid my parents wouldn't let me watch tv it was like like that's when i was 13 we got mtv for like a year oh wow and then i spent all that year <laughs> what MTV. year was this it was like 2000, 2000, 2000 to 2001. Oh, so probably Jackass was on. Yes. Jackass. Jackass, Jackass is, I think. Andy Milanakis. Yes. Probably. Tom Green was probably yes, on. Yes. Remember those world premiere? Pimp My slates? Ride. Pimp My Ride. <laughs> One time I saw a super cut of Exhibit doing that little intro where it's just him him in one landscape just fading into <laughs> into like another location in the same frame. And then it was like eight minutes with just all of Exhibit just like appearing and disappearing in frame. It was amazing. But anyway. There also used to be this show on MTV. I don't know what it was called. But like, let's say someone had a birthday, so their friends would surprise them. Oh, and my bring... super sweet 16? I don't remember, but it was like, you're like a Britney Spears fan and you have a birthday, so you're going to star in a Britney Spears video. You're going to be Britney Spears. We'll teach you all the dance and all the choreography and shoot the video just like we did with Britney, but you would be instead of But you're of Brit the star. <laughs> exactly. And then, and then they show the final product at the end of the yes, episode. And it looks like this bootleg version of the actual <laughs> video. It's really funny. Like it's shot at Six Flags Great Adventure or something. <laughs> I don't know what that show is. I got to dig that one up I, out of the I'll, I'll try to find it and send you because yeah. it's really funny. Probably Daria was on at that time too yeah so but, okay so anyway you so i got like my got dose of that gotcha but then my parents canceled it i think after 9 11. interesting or they also thought we were watching too much mtv <laughs> um so yeah cable went away and uh 
the computer was left mm -hmm. and um, I used to play, I used to manage a lot of roller coasters and amusement parks on and roller Sims. coaster tycoon and oh. Sims. I was, that I, was I my favorite heard, game. <laughs> I haven't heard roller coaster tycoon in so long. That was my favorite game, I think. Yeah, just manage amusement parks. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and uh, I think the first time I kind of started to go online was around those kind of games and download like extensions and stuff for the games. Right. And um, what was, was the what was the internet browser of choice back then? Because I was on AOL at the time. Internet Explorer. Oh, you were on Internet Explorer. Yeah, yeah. Or Netscape was or that Netscape? a thing? That's yeah. a that's a browser. But then how were you actually connecting to the internet? Oh, like phone, like that. Right, right, with like a regular like 28.8 or like a 56K or something. Just like the, I don't know what it's called, but it's the thing that basically doesn't let anybody talk on the phone because you're on the internet. <laughs> oh, yeah, I remember I, I would go it's to a like friend's busy. house. Exactly. Yeah. I would go to a friend's house that had two lines. I'm like, oh, they got a two-line house. Yeah. We can talk on the phone and be on the internet. And then we can set up a meetup at the mall and then also tell our friends on the phone. We could get mad people at the mall. <laughs> So yeah, if I was on the internet, no one could talk on any phone, and like my mom wouldn't know, and she's like, "Why is nobody calling? Like, what is going on?" <laughs> so yeah, but I think I got into this like dolls community. I don't know if you remember that. Dolls. Like, it's like little eight-bit figurines that are tiny of little dolls, basically. Okay. And there was a website called Dolls Mania, and that was like the first time where I kind of interacted with people abroad on sure. the internet. And I remember but, being but like... Through, through the creation of these 8-bit avatars? Exactly, yeah. And slowly they became more like manga and anime related. And I, used, I remember seeing these dolls and reading that they were made in vector. And I was like, what's a vector? And I, I just saw that the gradients was, were like really... It wasn't like 8-bit anymore. It was like a gradient shape. Yeah. And I was like, how did they make that? So I tried to like draw that pixel by pixel in oh. PaintShop Pro 7 and create a seamless gradient like in oh a my, vector. Oh my lord. And so, and I... <laughs> How long did that take you? Like a weekend, like hours, you know, and I didn't, and I was like, how did they make that? And then I read Photoshop. I was like, what ah, Photoshop? That? Yeah. It, I, it's like $800. Like, oh my God, I'm never going to have Photoshop. <laughs> this is like I'm a never going to get to work in vectors. <laughs> exactly. I'll never it's make a like, vector. It sounded so, you know, cool and out of this world. Like, I'm never going to get there, <laughs> you know? Um, and yeah, so I worked in PaintShop Pro <laughs> to draw like pixel by pixel, like seamless gradients. Uh, <laughs> It's so funny so, because now I, I definitely hit a gradient phase. It like recently. Was I'm like, not over it. I'm I know still I'm not there. over it. Gradients. <laughs> like, gradients are so dope. I still think about gradients all the time. I remember I was at Nike and I was doing all these, all these gradients and like dissolve layers yeah. in all my files, and they were just like, "Rich, you're obsessed with gradients right now." I was like, "Yeah, that's because they're dope." I know we can't print them on a T-shirt, but that's cool. <laughs> I mean, you technically can if you do like a primer layer and then you do one color and then the other color. Yeah. Uh, well, <laughs> then you get into like the cost. Exactly. Of the thing. Yeah. Anyway. So, so you're, yeah. you're, uh, you're pixelating gradients. So I always was like interested in, you know, these things. I always played in the computer, yeah. the internet, whatever. Um, and then finally, when I was in school, um, I think I was like approaching the end. It took me an extra year to finish because, you know, I took all the time that I needed. And at some point I was like, what am I doing? Am I doing what I want to do? Or, you know, 
Am I just being a good student and not doing what I feel like it? So mm-hmm. it did take me like an extra year to finish. Yeah. Um, I did like a break. And then when I was in my kind of last year, I think a lot of things sort of eased up in my head and I got out of the competitive sort of state of mind in working and studying and I more enjoyed the process of working. And, uh, and then I thought, I'm not done. <laughs> like, I don't want to finish. I feel like I just started to learn, yeah. you know. So um, I started looking at the graduate programs. I didn't really think it was within my reach at all. Um, but still, because all my family are academics and everybody goes to grad school, it was kind of like less of a weird thing for me. Mm-hmm. Um, so I started applying to schools and I thought that it was like a lost cause. But then suddenly I got all these replies and uh, I, you know, had the opportunity to interview with amazing people. And, you know, I think I interviewed with Ellen Lupton and Micah and... Um, at RISD and eventually I went to Yale. Um, oh, I want to get into that. Yeah, sure. But yeah, eventually I, I ended up going there. So I yeah. literally finished undergrad after that gap year and went to grad school. Got and, it. At Yale. Yeah. The glow up. The what? The glow up. The glow up. I Yeah, I mean, I sort of... I don't. I'm not sorry. I did that directly after undergrad. Oh no! What? But no I one feel should like, apologize. I think that's so dope. But I, I do feel like I would have been a better student if I had worked a little bit more. Because I did work before, but it was on my own projects with friends or people that I. I never worked in a studio or in a professional oh. corporate environment before I went to grad school. But is that? It's before? not. It's no. not. It's not something you have to do, but I feel like when I started working after grad school, so many things hit me and, you know, and I learned so much um, and I had so much more discipline. I don't know. Maybe I'm just hard on myself. I'm not sorry I went in a young age. And I I don't think that is necessarily (laughs) a young age. I think you're ready when you're ready. True. And I think that in order to even be accepted into a, a highly competitive, you know, uh, one of the most revered universities in this country. You're probably at an elevated mindset more than most. I don't know. I hope. I don't know. (laughs) Yeah, I I would say so. And I know that when I went to grad school, I had about three years of kind of being in the weeds. You went to SVA? I went to SVA. And I was working at the mall. I was substitute teaching. I was more just hungry to do anything that was creative. Mm -hmm. And I just occupied all my time and energy into focusing on getting to that point. And it was really just born out of personal frustration because I hadn't, in my opinion, excelled or I hadn't taken myself seriously. That's exactly what I felt, that I didn't excel yet, that I, there was so much more that I needed to explore in a sense. Did you have a kind of an imposter syndrome situation? Oh yeah, I think I still have, <laughs> but <laughs> you're doing just fine all the time. <laughs> but uh, I don't know. Can uh, I ask the? Yeah. I remember one time you explained the Yale School of Design or like the Yale philosophy towards design. Really? Yeah. <laughs> I don't. I can't take that responsibility. Well, no, but you you at least <laughs> talk me through it because I. Mm, I think I remember that or something. Yeah. Could you just tell me or tell our audience what is Yale Design or what are the what are the principles of Yale Design? I mean, I don't think I can define the principles, but I do think that maybe a certain common thread 
that I can identify in a sense that things don't need to be just pretty or beautified, that they should be a little bit difficult or a little bit... Um, Challenging? Yeah, or not like a little far out of your reach sometimes or like it shouldn't cater to you too hard in a sense to I, the audience or yeah got it but yeah. why because I, I believe mm-hmm. that that's valid too but i'm trying to understand well, is it an anti-thought or I, is it meant to i don't think it's i i maybe it's a little bit of a backlash because you know i think a lot of the times we hear like designer as problem solver and things like that right but I feel like like this is not really said or talked about, but um, I don't think anybody at Yale wants to be this utilitarian problem solver, in a sense. And in a sense, people do identify that there's a contribution in actually creating a problem and that you also can contribute to society by making people ask questions and not just find answers all the time. And I don't know, like imagine you lived in a world where all of design was just helpful and just good and you know it would it sounds like black mirror to me you know yes like sometimes you want to sometimes it's good to you know stop and think like wonder like what the fuck like why you know but then what is the bridge between design and art how is that not just art or is is design the the mechanism with which you get well, because eventually art. it's stuff that you engage with and you use, you know, whether it's a website or it's a space you walk through or it's a book that you read or it's a it's a product that you engage with and you use. It's not just hanging on the wall or existing in a gallery. You have it, you do things with it, but it's not always so intuitive or so easy, but it's sometimes challenging and interesting and weird, you know. Yes. Yeah. And, and how is that? that common thread pioneered through Yale? Well, I think that, um, at least from my experience, I, of course, can't speak for the whole program, but sure. in, in my experience... <laughs> this is a, you're officially speaking for the program now, <laughs> no, so... No, please, no, I um, can't. But, like, <laughs> what I... Yale's gonna give you a call later. Maybe. Mr. Yale. Yeah, I don't I don't deserve, but whatever. Are you a uh, Yalie? Are you part of the Yale club? Can you go... Oh, no, no. Really? I mean, no. But it's, if you're a Yalie, can't you get into the Yale club? If you have a lot of money and you want to pay. Oh, is that what it is? It's, yeah. a, it's a paid membership situation? Uh, yeah. Got it. Yeah. Uh, so it's kind of like Soho House. Got it. <laughs> um, so, so Soho so, okay. House is... Uh, the, so is it as lit as Soho House? Because at least I can go to Soho House and party. Um, I was in Soho House once. I felt like I was in like a Coke ad or something. It was all these beautiful people kind of lounging. Or something. I don't that know if the Yale right. Club is like that. Got it. I think they want to. <laughs> anyway. Soho, yeah. Soho but the, House the wants school, to be like Marrakesh or something. The School of Art. Yeah, exactly. The The School of Art is a little different, I feel like, than the bro Yale cliche in right. a sense. It, there's a lot of international people in there and it's not so stuck in that kind of Ivy League thing. Sure. Um, but anyway, so in, in projects that you do in the school, what from my experience, you're not they don't want you to come up with a plan for a final result in like the first moment that you start working on something you know it's not right. like you you start a project and you're like okay i'm going to make a book and it's going to be this and that okay i'm going to make a website and I'm gonna be, no no they don't want to hear about the final result necessarily it's more like you like starting to work around an idea 
and start to explore this idea in like motion and what happens when you put it in a space what happens when you print it out what happens when you put it online you sort of start to work with an idea and develop it from all these different perspectives and then you kind of end up with this body of work that yeah has these kind of applications yes but you didn't start from the application you started from the idea in a sense got it and i know that sounds very like i don't know abstract or privileged or something like that but for me it made a big difference because in my undergrad we really needed to like present our plan you know deliver it right and it didn't really matter if we knocked it out three days before the final credit sure but at yale you if you didn't show process if you didn't have process there's no way you could have come up with a body of work like that so um, what is a metric of success then how do you gauge the effectiveness of something or is effectiveness as as a metric just pushed down so that you're not really judging it based on that in what way um let's say you have to create well so i'm looking at uh eye on design issue two right so if, if we if i was to recreate this through the yale lens <laughs> right uh and then i were to physically deliver the book if the book had if every page of this book was a different dimension and that was and it was like weird and and slightly janky but but janky <laughs> based on my personal intent so is that how you define the yale I, thing <laughs> well my my understanding my attempt to understand Yale is through uh, some element of uh, challenge towards the viewer mm -hmm. and me um, and also I, I kind of like to do this too where like I'll just try to like try to fuck with you just a little bit yeah so if I'm trying to fuck with you just a little bit mm -hmm. and then um, kind of add more clicks in the process it does that and, and also, I'm kind of confident about it. Does that mean like, hey, Rich kind of, he did that. <laughs> did, did, I, did, I, did I win? Did my team win? I don't know. Like, how, do, how, do you get, how do you get the, the, check, the check plus plus at Yale? I don't know. I'm, I didn't really, I mean, it's weird because every person I can think of who went there, their work is so wildly different from each other. Right. Like, everyone is truly unique. Yes. And yet you can always like sort of almost recognize when somebody went there yep. in, in a way. So it's this really weird like oxymoron almost. Um, I think, I mean, I don't think, I don't know the recipe for like success there, but I can say, at least from my personal experience, when I um, just sort of let go of the master plan and just was interested in an idea and then yeah. tried that idea in motion and tried that idea in silkscreen tried that idea online like yeah then or then i took that idea and made a poster for a guest lecture around that idea then you know you sort of start to have what like sheila the head of the program calls a visual methodology <laughs> so it's not like you can you have like a manier that you do all the time yes but you just have some kind of core principle that manifests itself in some way or another throughout your work and you can't always put a finger on it you're yeah. not always aware that you're doing it yes but i think the art of it is to look back and maybe even look at what you're doing while you're doing it and to learn to identify that right. and, and not cling to it or stick to it too much so you don't get boxed in but just to learn that it's there you know like that little core so Okay, so hard-hitting question. Mm -hmm. Does that program somehow prepare you for the industry 
after yes. the fact, but is it because of the discovery of the process or does it also yes. teach you teach you the client skills? So, so for me, this was very personal. Sure. Um, no one really ever talked to me about like what you do after school. Like it's not purposefully or deliberately gearing you to like how to find a job or how to talk to right. a client. None of that. But um, because you learn how to like kind of develop and cling on to a DNA that is yours in your work, then later when you go out and you do all the sort of normal sort of studio work and, you know, work in teams and in a way employ a little bit of that skill that I got in undergrad of sure. just like working a lot really fast, <laughs> then, then, you know, you do still have this uh thing that you always you know what the value is of the process and you know um that it's okay not to necessarily know exactly where you're going in the beginning right but to still have the confidence and kind of seeing what's out there you know um does it so, make you precious um that's a great question because at school i felt very precious and then um I think in my first job after school, I worked at MTV with Richard Turley. Yep. That was my first job. And it's uh, a wild first job. It school. really is. It really is. I don't know how he contacted me when I was finishing up. I don't know how he found me. I don't know what. Um, but because you had, we had to make like three videos a day that would be aired on that day. That was like a very good way to be shaken out of the preciousness yes. <laughs> in a sense. Yeah. Also, because you just didn't have time. And also because um, it, it was supposed to not look precious. It was supposed to look scrappy. Yeah. You know, so. And lean into disposability in some way. Exactly. So I feel like grad school definitely makes you precious. But it kind of depends on what kind of work you end up doing that you might kind of start to let go of that preciousness in a way. But it's weird because when you have a process and you reveal the process, you have to be a little bit not precious because mm -hmm. you show things that aren't perfect or done or, or sometimes just bad things. <laughs> yeah. Um, so it, it's funny. It makes you precious and not precious at the same time. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> How have you evolved since then? Like what, what, what do you think you've, you've taken away from, from being in the industry now, like working at these great places, like now you're currently a pentagram. And you're working with, uh, you know, Emily Oberman, who's a legend also. She is. Yeah. Like, yeah. What are your, has your perspective changed at all? Um, wildly, I think. <laughs> I mean, I think it changes all the time. Um, and yet it also doesn't change. I don't know. Like, um, I think that straight out of school, I, I changed a lot in the sense that I kind of, learned how to work with people in a sense before that i was mostly working by myself and then you know when you go and work out you sort of start to value the process of collaboration and you become more trusting in other people mm -hmm. and you start enjoying the process of working with others so i think that is a you know something that was kind of new to me in a sense and uh I also kind of learned that working with friends is something that can lead to a lot of great stuff. Yes. Because if you just stick to like paid work in corporations or studios, you're still kind of doing the work of others in a sense. Right. Um, whereas, I don't know, like at some point, uh, I think in 2015, I met a friend, Jay, who was starting a series of um, like film screenings. 
that were more fun than normal film screenings okay so he wanted to have like projections and a dj and dancers and just things that happen and he was like hey i need some videos to project or hey i need like a flyer i need a logo i need this and that mm -hmm. so we started to work together and this just kind of started this whole thing of making and making and making and it was not paid you know at the time um but it uh, you know it just didn't matter because it was just so fun and then eventually it started to bring other things yes. and eventually we started to get sponsorships and things like this so um i think that a, a big shift in perspective for me was that work doesn't always have to be like given to you right um and that you can kind of like connect to that place of how you were when you were a kid and just pick up like a thing and start making something and I don't know. How much of your identity is connected to your physical creation process? A hundred percent. Like, I don't think that I can one day be a creative director or something because for me, the process of making is so inherently important. Mm -hmm. I can't imagine just like hiring people and telling them what I want them to do. <laughs> it's, I, it's kind of hard because... Yeah, it's hard. Uh, real hard I don't like I know that like the more you work in this field you're sort of expected to go up this sort of process but I can not be on the computer making what I do or not on the computer you know right um, well I still make shit all the time yeah and that's so I'm, important I'm still making a lot of crap <laughs> that's and do you find that making that makes you be a better um Makes Ma you do manager your manager or something. I mean, VP. Right, <laughs> I mean, right, right. Well, <laughs> it's that title. Can I be real? That title is so weird. It's a weird title, and I I appreciate what that title gives me, but the idea or the weight behind it somehow it doesn't fully translate into the nature of the work if that makes any sense it's it's like trying to uh, it's like trying to put like a like a like a an imperfect like real nitty gritty emotional intellectual academic sloppy everything in between process but then put like a sheen of <laughs> professionalism on top of it mm -hmm. when at the end of the day if you delivered the thing that you needed to deliver and then you make your team feel uh, empowered and, and good about the, the thing as much as possible, of course, right? Mm -hmm. Within reason. And then also you service the, the, the nature of the content and the ask um, in the way that my, my philosophy has developed over the past few years. Then I think that I've been successful mm -hmm. uh, and my team has been successful and I've allowed them to succeed and I've, yeah. I've allowed for growth to happen. But would have you, do you like, yep. don't you yep. feel like the stuff that, like, the, what, the things that you do, what did yeah. you say, like, make crap or something? Yeah, make crap, yeah. That, like, this podcast is even part of that crap. It's like, I don't get paid but that's for this. But that's what I think is that when you have that initiative to yes. sort of make things, yes. then you have more of a ability or motivation to make things happen around you in other places oh you know? yes one thousand percent and and so i think that's like one of the things that like going back to yale a little bit that's a, a little bit that of that was there you know yes, because yes. it's sort of that principle of if you 
take initiative to make something yeah. and that sort of energy and and ability translates into other worlds oh yeah and then you that is the visual methodology and it's a methodology of behavior and just of being in the world in yeah. a sense you know so yeah i think w when you make those things it directly impacts your ability to you know do all these other wonderful things oh, whereas yeah, if you're just sure. sitting in an office trying to be a good vp I don't think, I think that's much, much harder. You're being much more hard on yourself. <laughs> yeah, that's that's 1000% true. And I'm, I'm glad you expressed that actually because my my physical desire to create with my hands um, on a very um, basic level, like a very, uh, 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 what is it, um, analog level, yeah. you know, where like I will paint a mural, I will draw. And um, it's amazing. <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah, thank you. Actually, you have to paint a mural like, not to uh not to you're like uh, in half now. an hour i'm going to paint yeah, them <laughs> exactly i gotta get my projector i gotta get my pens and i'm gonna get real uh sweaty and super tired my my shoulder is gonna fall off um but yeah i it, it's it all informs my my identity and then it's it's it informs my like you say the ability to to make other things outside of the field and then at least for my day-to-day um, those are skills like those hard like tactile skills where I can say like oh I've actually helped manage the expectations of a massive campaign mm -hmm. with a lot of with a lot of uh, eyeballs and visibility to it and guess what no one died <laughs> <laughs> you know so there is that there is that field general um, mindset where can you can you fire the weapon physically but also can you um, manage the individuals that fire their weapons and also hit the targets. Mm -hmm. Not to take it to a violent place, but <laughs> but it is often a war zone. I mean, I think it's. I liked how you said that. Also, you care about the team feeling empowered. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think empowered is like a funny word because it kind of goes out of the assumption that someone doesn't have power and like you're giving them power. Right. But in corporate environments, sometimes it's just like that. Oh yeah, sometimes you by just default have no people power. don't have power. <laughs> oh yeah, absolutely. And then you you have to leave it to yourself to 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 give your to provide your worth. Yeah. And then to uh, you have to give yourself the gift of self worth. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um. So yeah, I think. Um. Tell me so, about yeah just uh, things that you learn. I think that's what I. A big thing that I learned. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Tell me about this because uh, I'm picking up the the Ion Design issue too. This is such a massive. Oh man, undertaking. I feel bad. The tell fifth, me, tell the me about fifth this. issue is about to come out, and I don't want it to seem like we're promoting this. Issue. Oh no, I, honestly, I this podcast is not an AIGA like but. promotional tool. I will talk about whatever the hell we want to talk about okay 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 cool um <laughs> no, oh yeah. but shout out to the aiga new york board because they're all <laughs> dope people and <laughs> this is ion design team is amazing exactly yes so how did this come into your life and also looking at your your multidisciplinary capabilities what mm -hmm. what was your personal process going into this um so the good people at ion design uh kind of reached out and said that they're um theme for the second issue is psych which is i think like a new way of talking about psychedelia mm -hmm. and design and sort of experience and awareness and the lack of awareness and right. journeys and you know 
and also the history of psychedelic movements and you know design right um, so this magazine's all about drugs right this issue there's there's some drugs in there yeah, yeah. well there's a lot of uh <laughs> vector pill shapes in here <laughs> there's vector pill shapes and gradients well so there's an article about how designers today okay so like right in the psychedelic uh 60s you know designers would take drugs some, sure. or I, some designers would take drugs and like I've connect heard, to i've this. heard about certain things like okay, that okay. <laughs> You know, you trip on mushrooms and then you make things, you know. But yes. so in a way, you sort of release your mind and your creative energy with psychedelic drugs. But today, a lot of designers and people in general take like focus enhancing drugs. So right. in a way, oh, like Adderall. Exactly. So they're taking drugs, but not in order to. Or modafinil or something. I, I don't know. I, I actually never took, but um, a lot of people that I know take. But it's just interesting that like drugs kind of stayed, but the function of them changed. Like right. once people use them to kind of release, you know, a creative energy and not be aware of themselves. But right. today it's to be hyper focused. It is you know? for the hyper focus and also to, I think, physically yeah. put yourself in a state to create the output. Yeah. And there's also a fun article about women in the psychedelic movement in the 60s when, you know female designers um who there were actually a lot of them and that doesn't really surprise me because you know the melting grids you know the moving colors it's very sort of not the classic kind of swiss design that you sure. know, we think of yeah, um yeah it's in a way kind of like a different maybe more feminist way to look at things or you know or alternative way to look at things and at design um and yeah i mean i kind of like to say uh the orange day glow that's printed throughout the magazine um like psychedelic posters in the 60s had a lot of day glow ink in them and that was actually originally introduced to graphic design through road signs so psychedelic or sorry day glow ink was used in like road signs and like you know construction suits and then, like, from that world, it started to come into print. Right. And the I, orange is so vibrant. I love it. You it's know, so vibrant. You know that we chemically see Dayglow ink 70% faster. 70% times faster or something like that. So, like, it hits our eye faster than normal colors. Right. Oh, I'm kind of wearing a Dayglow yeah. shirt right now, actually. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I don't know. I think, And you can't see it on screen. Like, Dayglow colors, you just can't. You can't really experience their effect on screen. You have to see it in the real world in order to get the effect, hmm. which I think is also interesting when you talk about a psychedelic experience. It's very much about being there. Do you know the origins of uh, day glow colors within actual products? Like when did this start actually appearing within a commercial space? So it started in uh, construction and road signs. Right. That was what I was saying before. It's like whenever there but was. Then how do they hit that? How did they get there? Well, I think they were looking for a color that you see faster, that you can't ignore, that right. stands out in a really extreme way. Right. And it's made out of powder. Uh, like, it's it's a different chemical process. Um, and, uh, yeah, I think it's interesting how a kind of ink starts out from living in the physical space and then it kind of goes into 2D uh, spaces. How long did this book take? How long did the magazine take? Um, we started working I keep on calling it. it a book, but it feels like a book. <laughs> yeah, I think I think it's kind of like a journal, maybe. It is a journal, yeah. Um, so we started to be in touch around March last year, 
and it was launched in in the end of august so in the months kind of leading up we would have weekly calls and you know each the editors are amazing group of team of a team of editors of Perrin and Meg and shout out to everybody um, and an amazing in-house designer Tala Safia. Um, everybody kind of showed their progress on the stories, on the design, on the general kind of editorial direction of the magazine. And it was fun because I was very much involved in that conversation. That's cool. They shared all of that for me with me. And to me, that's really important to not just be given something and repackage it, but to kind of be let into that editorial process. Right. Um, and then I would say the last month was like really sit down and like crank it out <laughs> the Got last it. like three weeks or something. Who was doing the hardcore InDesign work? That's right you? Right here. <laughs> Damn. Um, but it was fun. Yeah. What? Um, and it's always, I love, I mean, I work in motion as well. Right. Of and course. then also editorial design. I feel like they have a lot in common. Um, and so... Yeah, it's fun when you get a kind of playground project like that, I think. Did you have a emotional or physical breaking point on this? I think I always, on projects that I deeply care about, I can't put an end to it. I just can't say, okay, done. I just keep working and keep working and keep working. And it's like late after the deadline, you have to close the file, have to export, send to the printer. <laughs> and I'm always like, I, I still have this thing to do. I still have that thing to do. I still have this thing to do, you know? Yeah. So I, it doesn't happen to me a lot, but in some projects, I just can't bring myself to the end. Really? I think in undergrad in my thesis project, I kept working on it after the presentation. Hmm, interesting. Like, like you just sort of, yeah. Uh, and that was, that, that was just you <laughs> just like doing that because you because you're your like psyche. it's like you're in the emergent or you know when something spins around really fast and it just keeps spinning after you stop spinning it <laughs> it's kind of like that in a sense. gotcha um so yeah it was really it was such a fun project mostly also because the collaboration um with the editors and the in-house design team and the writers was just great we had a launch party at house of yes which was a lot of fun oh yeah like actually aiga does some pretty cool stuff in terms of their content. I feel that they're way more progressive now than historically, um, but also like by nature of the the designers and the creative community also being in tune with the progressive um, uh, party culture mm -hmm. and also progressive like um, uh, counter and pop culture world. It, it's actually had some interesting bleed offs. Going back to the whole commercial type thing, there was an interesting observation uh, by someone I was talking to that night that, that I guess 15, 20 years ago, all designers like wore black. And then you would just wear black and then you you just look like, oh, you're a designer. You have your, mm -hmm. your tiny glasses and then like you're probably your, your sharp bangs. <laughs> and then then you just look like that. But then now all designers look like skaters. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And then like, to me, like all designers now starting to look like, uh, mid nineties club kids. <laughs> you, know I what, mean, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. I think that, you know, I, mean, I wish I had more of that in me. Like, I feel like I'm kind of like a black wearer just because it's really easy. <laughs> Wait, a what? Oh, oh, black wearer. Yeah. Gotcha. But I, I was don't. Like, is that an animal? I think, yeah, it is. It is an animal, a black wearer. It's me. <laughs> no, just kidding. Um, but um, yeah, I think 
I wish I had more of that initiative to like stand out with what I wear. I sometimes feel like I just try to like not make that part of the conversation. So I like default back to defaults when it comes to clothes. <laughs> you know? I think you're doing just fine. <laughs> well, though, you know, we all fall into like a certain subset. Like for me, I've I've always leaned into uh, just kind of a, a bit of a visual loudness. Mm-hmm. Um, but then uh, in order to facilitate my energy when I'm communicating with people, but then sometimes, and I I, I feel bad about this, I, I'll get hit with, uh, oh, Rich, blah, 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 blah. And then I'll have a similar energy hit me. And then I'll be like, whoa. What's what is this right now? And then I'll think about it later and then realize like, oh, shit, they're probably just mirroring the thing (laughs) that I typically do. Yeah. And that's what I'm sort of scared. I'm scared of like being in that place in a sense. Like Mm. I. I sort of want I don't know if maybe it's a gender thing or something, but I don't want my physical appearance to like be a part of the work that I put out there in a sense. Oh, interesting. To me, the most like yeah blank canvas or something like that no that makes sense um i don't i mean it's weird because like a lot of i don't know friends that i have that do very vibrant work i don't know like zipong for example sure. oh, you yeah. know loves the pong shout out he's to amazing you know so you know also his whole like being is kind of a work of art i feel like yeah um his oeuvre <laughs> is his art so like and but I have like the opposite instinct or something of like <laughs> try to disappear in a sense. <laughs> but it's I I think that there's there's just like a, a different school of thought there. Yeah, right? when it totally. comes to like the physical appearance, there's a part of the the sellability for lack of a better way to express it. And I and I'm guilty of this where I use that as a way to say like hey, uh, here's the, here's the shorthand. Here's a short visual hand of what I could give you without actually giving you my portfolio or having to talk through it. And that's, there's a school of thought that wants that. And there's a school of thought that doesn't want that. I think I remember I had an experience once. I won't like say where it was, but. You should say the names and the address. (laughs) Okay. Go get him. No, just kidding. (laughs) Um, But like, I don't know. I feel like someone saw my work and had like an expectation. And then when they saw me in physical life, they were like, oh. Like, you don't look like a person that does that because you're just like nor- normal, <laughs> you know, you're oh not like God. you don't look eccentric. And that pissed me off because you don't judge a book by the cover. Yes. Even though, I don't know, the covers of books are a wonderful, complicated thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but I didn't want to be committed to look like my work in a sense. Right. And I didn't want like if somebody to me it was like oh i expected you to be pretty <laughs> you know oh my god <laughs> i expected you to be cool i expected so it's kind of like i want to blank myself down and not cater to people's expectation of how i might look because my work looks like that interesting do you see your work evolving in order to allow the blank canvas to to change the work evolving to allow i think the blank canvas wants to be the, the blank canvas right. and all the energy be in the work. <laughs> well, well, let me rephrase what I'm saying. I probably didn't say that right. Like, do you see your work changing um, different, like, or like less visually eccentric 
Um, and also, yeah, I guess unrelated to the blank canvas. Because if mm -hmm. the blank canvas is the blank canvas, where is your work going to go? Does the blank canvas allow more evolution within the work is what I'm trying to say? I think so. Because I, in a way, like if I don't physically commit to a look. Sure. Then my work is more open to evolve to other sure. things. I'm, I'm not trying to like stick on the physical thing. No, no. It's yeah, like, I like, know, I know. Yeah, yeah, like for the... Where is your work going and where is your work evolving? I don't really know. I mean, sometimes I think I kind of need to have that together and have that figured out. But the truth is, like, it, you know, it depends on a lot of things. It depends on what I feel like doing. It depends if I want to learn something new. It depends if I have a client that wants something that has a certain feel, mm -hmm. you know. And I mean, I mean, at Pentagram, I don't always make things that look like this, you sure. know? So you do kind of need to have the ability to be flexible. Sure. And Can you say what you are working on at Pentagram? Oh, we're working... Is it a secret? No, no, it's not. We're starting to work on um, the new issue of No Man's Land for The Wing. Wow. Um, it's a magazine uh, published by The Wing, which yep. is a co-working space for women in the yep. city. Um, are you a member of The Wing? No, oh. I, I don't... They should probably give you a membership, right? I, or I either work in the studio or on my couch basically <laughs> or at parsons i a lot of the time like to go there i teach there and i can work in the library but it's great that's great um i used to have a desk space in bushwick but then when i started to work full-time there it was just like not worth keeping it um so well oh yeah so we're working on no man's land we're working on uh the next film independent spirit awards Ooh, um, that's very cool yeah it's such a fun project the first time I worked on it was the one that happened in February and working with Emily and all the team on those projects is so fun really um, so yeah it's it's a fun mix of editorial and motion which is and some branding which mm -hmm. is a very unique combination for yeah, me very holistic exactly um, it sounds like you are on track to being a creative director no, really, because I, I, I have to make things, and right. I never see creative... creative directors still make things sometimes. At home was, or in sigh. work, yeah, like because I, I don't know, I, I freelanced in a lot of places, and I worked in places, and I, I don't really feel like. Sometimes I even think that like if a creative director was sitting and moving things in Illustrator, mm -hmm. people would be like, "What are they doing?" <laughs> you know. <laughs> Right. So, but and if you're in a place that's visually based, yeah, based in the visual, then I think it should be my philosophy is that the creative director should have at least some ability to do the things that his or her team can physically do. Like I, I yeah. came up in the space of like I, I made the thing, I made a variety of things, I learned these things, and then and now I'm in a position to to. I want to never ask my team to do something I would never do myself. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I understand. And um, I don't know. I mean, when I teach, for example, I, I teach motion design at Parsons. And uh, like, I, I, I don't want to tell or recommend to the students to do something that I wouldn't do. But sometimes right. I do recognize that they have like an interest in something. So I feel like it is my responsibility to maybe see how they can develop themselves in that thing that they want to develop, even if it's not something that I want to develop. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, for sure. Um, so, yeah, I feel like teaching is, is a really fun thing for me. It, it really opens my mind and helps me be better at, at my day-to-day -day work, I think. Do you find that 
connecting to students and talented students on a regular basis keeps your work young or does that like visually keep you connected to mm. current culture? I feel like, um, I mean, I wouldn't necessarily say that all the work, there are a few great like exceptions. I wouldn't say necessarily that the students bring young things to me. Like a lot of the times they start from a very prime kind of a primal place where they're just kind of doing other things that are out there, you know, right. because that's what students, a lot of students do. They start out by imitation, which is not a bad thing, you know, but it's important to kind of hear them talk about it and like why they wanted to imitate that and then progress into how they can kind of make their own version of it and then eventually make their own thing. You yeah. Know? So, I mean, I don't feel necessarily like it keeps me in touch with new things, but I do love it because that process of talking about the things that are existing and how you develop them and yeah. take them forward. Yeah. Like I think about that when I work because we all start with references and mood boards and whatever. Yeah. So I do feel like it keeps me more optimistic when working because I think when you teach, you sort of need to, um, at least not everybody, you don't need to, but I like to um, show the, the students that it's fun. Yeah, of course. <laughs> you yeah. know, and I feel like in motion, motion is fun, I think. Motion it's a lot of work. It's a lot of work, but there's more of a sense of humor in that field. Oh, and that's, that's interesting. What does that mean? Well, it's like a fun thing. You hit like, I don't know, preview and after effects and you see your things move and sometimes just funny. Like it, it's, it makes you laugh, you know. Right. And There's like a slapstick element to it. Exactly. Totally. And, um, and I think that when you go through that process with a student and you sort of together leave the kind of heavy space of studying and like designing and making, then, you know, you sort of get into this new space of not worrying so much right you know and and when i work sometimes i need a reminder of that like don't worry <laughs> you know just like no it will be okay <laughs> do you bring the yale principles into your current teaching methodology um i definitely so i ta'd a motion class at yale with chris pullman i learned a lot from him so i definitely um i think there's a project that he used to do that i like to sort of give out to students as well um, but I, I think as a whole, I definitely bring in the process as something that I really care about. Like if a student doesn't do something all of the semester and then just does something in the night before, then I would say, what about the process? Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, and I, I definitely encourage the students to sort of be open to showing things in progress and bringing something every class. Like, right. If you don't have anything to show, still show up to the class. Still you know? show up. Yeah. Oh my God. That's such like the primary like thought, even for almost anyone on every level, but especially for a student, like yeah. just show up. Exactly. And you like, get so much by just showing up. When I was a student, I had this thing where I thought I was invisible. Like I thought people won't notice if I'm not there. People won't notice if I don't bring anything, you know. But that, as a teacher now, that's so wrong. Like the teacher notices. <laughs> Hell yeah, the teacher notices. Because like it reflects for me. Like if the students don't show up or something, it really like, reflects on me. So yes. of course I'm like hyper aware of who comes and who doesn't come. Of course. But it's also like there's so much more happening in class than you showing your work. Yes. Like there is references. 
there's lectures, there are guest critics, your friends are showing stuff. Like, there's so much happening. Yeah. And, like, the point is not you coming to show your work and go home, you know. Right, the point is engaging. Yeah, exactly. And and learning how to talk about it and giving feedback to your friends. Right. And um, so, yeah, it's definitely just show up. <laughs> <laughs> Great. So, Shira... Yeah. As we're winding down, it's it's been yeah. amazing talking to you. I'm Likewise, so gl- yeah. I'm really happy we did this. Me too. I'm so <laughs> glad that you agreed, and also that we uh, randomly saw each other over at a commercial type because, yeah. like, it's your work. Honestly, I look at it, and it has the type of energy that that instills me with more energy. Kind of mixes everything up and helps me kind of you know like think I'm about so things in a different way. And also, thank you for for thank giving you. me this issue of a uh, eye on design. Because, I hope you enjoy uh, reading it. I will. I am going to enjoy reading it. It's it. This thing is for the for the listener. This thing is so fucking tight. <laughs> like it is truly. You remember tight. Magic Eye? It's in there. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I'm looking at it. I'm like this is. It reminds me so much of this is. A, a, I never managed to see Magic Eye, by the way. Oh really? I can't see it. Oh really? Maybe. Uh, hmm. Maybe you have to. Uh, Take some psychedelics. Yeah, exactly. Maybe you should read this magazine that you designed. And then, no, there's uh, instructions here of how to read it, how to see Magic Eye. But oh, yeah, I you have still to cross your eyes a little bit. I tried that. Believe me. Why does someone just like you have to cross your eyes just a little bit? When I was a, a kid, smidge. I used to cross my eyes all the time. Because like when you cross your eyes, you see things. Like you know, you like see. I don't know. Right. But anyway, off topic. Um. So. Thank you so much for this. Yes, thank um, you. Yeah, can, tell our listeners uh, uh, anything that's coming out. Like, do you want to what what's popping out for you? I know that you just talked about what you did at Pentagram, but um, anything coming up for Shira? No filter. Um. Uh, well, so I'm working with some friends on a magazine called Separated. I worked. Oh yes, of I course. I wrote to yeah. you about this. Uh, it's just going to be one page posters um, about the children in the border. Yeah, I um, love that you do that. I, it's the first time I'm doing something like this and I'm lucky enough to be surrounded with so many talented people who are willing to participate. Um, so it's going to be printed in two colors on big newsprint paper. Yeah. Linko, we're in Long Island City, agreed to sponsor part of the printing, which is nice. That's great. Um, it's going to come out later this later this summer or in the fall and we're going to have a big launch event, which will be really fun. Um, so I'm looking forward to that. Um, yeah, Little Cinema still has events. This on the twenty fourth, we're doing the Television Critics Association party. Mm-hmm. So I gotta go work <laughs> after this. <laughs> uh, and um, yeah, what else? I think that's that sounds like a full plate. Yeah, it's like a lot of projects. Um, where I mean, can I sort of? <laughs> well, it does to me. Uh, oh yeah, I'm gonna do a motion workshop at. Sh- where? Um, you know, Braulio's spot oh. in La- in uh, Lower East Side. They have like language courses and everything. So we're going to do like a three or four session motion workshop. Wow. So sign up, people. There's only six spots, but really? sign up. Really? <laughs> how, how intensive is that course going to be? It's going to be once a week. Um, really? Tuesday evenings um, from like 7.30 to 9.30. When does that start? Does this, this, the this last episode week of might August. drop? Oh, okay. I think. This will drop before that comes out. Okay, cool. Cool. <laughs> so yeah, sign up. Where can our <laughs> listeners find you? Uh, um, 
in New York. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Got it. Okay. Check. Wandering the streets of New York City. Um, it's hot as hell today, so probably oh my not gosh. today. Uh, I don't know. I actually have some things to do outside, unfortunately. Um, yeah. Um, New York. A lot of lawn upkeep and uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, fix, uh, roof fixing. Oh, my gosh. Um, but yeah, I guess the normal Instagram, all the usuals. I don't even remember what platforms already. <laughs> what are your Shira, what are your Instagram handles and what's your website? Um Shira No Filter. <laughs> okay. Loops for Ambience. Uh, oh, that's, loop, loops for ambience. Yeah, that's okay. like my Instagram. Understood. Um, which I need to like upkeep and upload stuff more. Oh my god, so much pressure. <laughs> Social know. media pressure is just it's fucked up. It, it's fun. It's like it try is. not to be too addicted and and good. Um That's a good point. Yeah, just normal website just google me you know it <laughs> sorry google yeah. her shira thank you so much this is thank so you. much fun yeah i really really enjoyed this thanks for having me this was awesome so i hope you really enjoyed that that was a really good conversation and also check out her issue of aiga's eye on design that's issue two it's a really beautifully designed piece of work and also uh, be sure to check out her projects separated they'll be coming out very soon i also had a little bit of a piece in that so thanks for listening you can find this podcast at apple Podcasts, spotify anchor fm stitcher soundcloud wherever you get your podcasts please rate us and drop a review it does help spreads the good word go to firstgenburden.com for all the episodes on instagram we are at firstgenburden you can find me your host at rich underscore tu on social media and also don't forget the nike cultivator project is live get your first gen air max 270 reacts the link is cultivator.co backslash nyc underscore rich underscore to you i'm going to say that a billion more times before labor day because that's when the drop ends so watch out for that make sure you cop again thank you to listening party and canal street market follow them at at listening party presents and at canal street market those guys are amazing make sure you go there get some ramen get some food Thanks to the Desgen team for their support. Thank you for checking out Season 4 First Gen Burden. Next week is the last episode of the current season, but don't stress out. We do have that live episode with AIGA New York with Benjamin Evans, the inclusive director at Airbnb. He's going to be coming through live. That's going to be at Parsons, September 12th. Be on the lookout for that. We might have another special drop before the end of the year. More details soon. Check us out every Monday, or at least one more Monday. Be safe, everyone. Bye.